0: in prayer and uh we'll <laughs> stealing my thunder I'm still in time, buddy. Still yeah in time. thanks thanks kt making sure there's enough chairs in the back for that herd that you just saw go to the back for uh for sunday school so they'll be fine they're kids all right please turn with me to psalm 13 we're going to read this short psalm, the psalm of David, and then I'll pray one more time for us this morning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to understand your word and you more. Give us a a spirit of illumination, conviction, hopeful encouragement. I pray that um, the words I say would be faithful to your word, that these listeners would be discerning in what they hear, uh, that you would give us truth this morning. Thank you for Christ, who has made life possible and the fellowship we have together this morning possible. In his name, amen. amen. All right. Have you ever felt like things in the world or in your life are not the way they are supposed to be? One author I know wrote a big tome on sin, a big book on sin, and titled it Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a good title. We live in a world that is trying to function, but is functioning counter to its design. You're living a life that cannot possibly unfold the way life was originally meant to unfold. It's not the way it was designed. This is true in many, many ways. Generally speaking, God created the earth to flourish under the care of Adam and Eve and their descendants. That didn't pan out. Even since the fall, though, God has provided humanity with direction and parameters, general rules as to how you can be happy and successful versus sad and destitute. The book of Proverbs being the prime example. Whether you are a God follower or not, certain kinds of decisions will lead to positive results more often than negative results. If you're lazy and irresponsible, you're probably going to have it rough in the long term. If you work hard, take ownership, your life will probably be more fulfilling. But even the Proverbs don't always pan out. They do generally. They do generally speaking. Think In America, it's true statistically, for example, that if you get your high school diploma and you don't have kids outside of marriage, you're probably going to be fine economically. It's just a statistic, right? If you don't get your high school diploma, if you have kids outside of marriage, statistically, life's going to be rough, maybe for a long time. But statistics are not laws. Proverbs are not promises. Some who follow the rules, follow those rules, end up losing everything anyway some who don't follow the rules end up rich and lazy and entitled anyway which is not the way it is supposed to be i've told some of you already the first time trying to trying to understand this kind of feeling it's not it's not stubbing your toe in the morning it's something deeper than that um i've told some of you the first time i saw eliza get ostracized by her friends she was, we were at a friend's house, back in the Quad Cities, and I took her down to the playroom, and a couple of her friends were there, who she knew, and they were playing with Legos, and she goes over all excited. Can I play too? And they didn't say anything, and they just, they just shoved her out of the circle. So I'm watching this, and it's just like the worst thing imaginable. <laughs> the worst thing imaginable. Right to the gut, right to the gut. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But even children, two, three years old, find out life doesn't always work right. And in that case, I did not step in and do anything about it because there's no protecting. There's no protecting her from this, right? And it's not like she's innocent either. You understand? I some people say, You need to you need to get your kids out there, you need to Put your kids in public school, get them in a lot of social circles so that they can experience the way the world is, you know, the mean, unforgiving way of the world. That way they're ready when they become adults and it's not a shock. I'm thinking listen, t- I have two daughters and they spend literally half the day being mean and unforgiving to each other. <laughs> they are not lacking in these experiences. Um, things don't work the way they should. I know I've mentioned this passage before too, but when we talk about uh, suffering, injustice, things not working the way they should, I think of one of my favorite parts of scripture, which is in Joshua. So you remember the Israelites winning at Jericho? Yes, walk around, blow the trumpets, walls fall down, yay we win. Easy victory, clearly by God's hand. And then fresh off of that victory, Joshua leads uh, the cavalry up to the city of Ai, and God has told Joshua, you will be 100% victorious. I think God told Joshua, you will literally not lose a single casualty. I don't think a single Israelite died in the Battle of Jericho. But, as Joshua is leading the charge on I, and, you know, I don't know exactly what it looks like, right? But they're charging, and say the first volley of arrows comes out, and Joshua sees a dozen of, a dozen of the Israelite soldiers pierce through, fall off their horse. What's going on here? And then another dozen. And then he calls the retreat, and as he's retreating, they manage to kill another dozen. 36 people die, the text says, specifically. And Joshua's thinking, as he would, what's going on here? At Jericho, the enemy's swords and arrows bounced off of us, or they missed us, right? God was with us. We won in every way. And here we are, God said we were going to be victorious, and now we're planning a funeral for 36 of our men. And I've got to tell all these families that we failed. Joshua's response is this, alas, O Lord God, he tears his clothes, I should say, tears his clothes and cries out, alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan, as in, wish we'd never even crossed the river. Oh Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs and fled from their enemies, the Canaanites, all the inhabitants of the land are gonna hear of this, they're gonna surround us, and cut off our name from the earth, is what Joshua says to God. So he's saying all these things, because apparently, God, you're not interested in giving us victory anymore. You were at Jericho, but now you're not, and I don't know what to do. doesn't make any sense, so I'm just kind of letting it out to you. And God's response, God's response is, in the English at least, get up is the first two words he says. Um, what are you doing? That's not, that's not exactly what the verse says. Why are you crying out to me? And then Israel has sinned. That's what's going on, right? And it turns out this guy... Took from Jericho what he shouldn't have, and no one knew it, but that's what was going on. Which, I think, is a good, simple illustration of both the confusion of suffering and the short-sightedness that we have, and the cause of suffering, right? Sin is the reason things are not the way they're supposed to be. In all of those examples, from creation, to the Israelites, to Eliza being ostracized by her friends, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So today, today our question is, how should we respond? How should I respond when I experience things working out of order in my life? Suffering, sorrow, injustice, pain. How should I respond to those things? First, let's start with this. How does the world say you should respond? Here are a few options I've cobbled together. Option A, anger. So you've done everything right, and it's still thrown in your face. You were morally upright, you did the right thing and had integrity and it didn't work out, so get angry, curse God and die. It ain't fair, I don't have to be okay with it. You become hardened with spite and cynicism. It's really a coping mechanism, right? Because if you're angry all the time, then when injustice happens, you don't have to act like you're caught off guard doesn't touch you anymore, right? The reality of suffering is expected and you're not gonna give it the satisfaction of your sorrow, so to speak. Another option, despair. Stop believing it's even possible for good things to happen. Don't torture yourself with optimism. I think of uh, Morgan Freeman's famous line in the Shawshank Redemption. Anyone? Yes? Shawshank, okay, a few smiles. That's enough, I suppose. So the, the, all these guys are in prison and the main character starts talking about how there's something inside that they can't take away, something inside of them that even any circumstance can't be stolen from them. And he calls it hope, and then Morgan's Freeman character says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. The idea being that despair, like anger, protects you. It's numbness, which is a lot better than sadness or, or relentless disappointment. Stop hoping for purpose or meaning or a better future. The world is the way it is. It's always going to be that way. To hope is to risk and it's not worth the risk. Despair. Uh, last one I'll mention. There are more than these, certainly. Denial. Enter here a vast majority of entertainment media today. Existentialism. So... Goes like this, all the suffering in the world means that there can't possibly be a good God. And if there can't be a good God, then there's not really any hope for anything in the future, any meaning or anything like that, but instead of falling into despair, which is pretty much the logical application of existentialism, you skip right to denial. So you say, you know what? You should live life to the fullest anyway. Enjoying the, enjoying the journey even if you don't know the destination, is fulfilling enough. In fact, it's like, it's like spitting in the face of the cold universe, right? You tell me there's no meaning, well, I'm going to have a good time anyway. I'm going to find meaning or make meaning for myself, okay? Which is denial in its most sophisticated form. You're just covering the fact that you know there's no reason for anything, uh, but you know it's unlivable, so you make something up. Have these options ever tempted you? Or does one particularly tempt you? I have, I'm of these three, I'm an anger person. Hardening my heart is a good way to feel like I'm still in control, even when I know I'm not. Perhaps one of the other two struck you as something, certainly probably not as fleshed out as those examples, but perhaps you've been tempted by hints of those. These options will not do, they aren't healthy, they're not helpful, they're not logical, Uh, And they're not biblical. So, how are we to respond, if not those worldly ways, how are we to respond to sin-induced, out-of-order suffering in our lives? Scripture's answer, I will argue, is what we call lament. The most basic definition for lament is that it's an expression of sorrow. We find most of the Bible's laments in the book of Psalms. And you probably know the book of Psalms is like an exemplar on how you should feel. It's a guide to emotions. It, would, it was Israel's corporate um, hymn book. They would sing these things, right? But it answers the question of how you should react to any variety of things, good and bad in life. Psalms doesn't only have laments. There's lots of praising, lots of worshiping, but the idea is, uh, say you're convicted of sin, and you have all these emotions about it, right? But you need to be told how to feel and how to express those emotions because you probably will not do that in a healthy way. So you go to Psalms, and it shows you this is what it looks like to be heartbroken about this or that, or this is what it looks like to feel despair or depression, or this is what it looks like to praise God because something amazing just happened. And so in this book, in this book, we have instruction, more or less, on how to talk to God about things that are so tragic and difficult that they make no sense to you. They make no sense to you. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And the way you should talk to God about those things is lament. So Psalm 13, which we read, is an example of a lament psalm. It's a short one. It's compact. has three clear sections in verse couplets, one through two, Three through four and five through six, and each section gives us a key element or principle of of what lament looks like. So, the first the first section in verses one and two shows us that lamenting first of all means honest communication. Look at these verses again. David is saying this: "How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever?" How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? Meaning, how long must I try to solve these problems within myself and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we don't know we don't know when this psalm is written in David's life so we can't tie it definitively to an event, but the historical books give us lots of options because David had a lot of traumatic things, traumatic episodes in his life. And what he does here in these first two voice, two two verses, is honestly communicates how he feels about a seemingly senseless situation. He's questioning God. The summation of his question is the phrase repeated four times. How long, how long are you going to stand by and let this happen to me? You have forgotten me, your face is hidden from me, I have no choice but to try and solve these problems myself. The sorrow is in my bones, the enemy is winning, over and over and over again, and so the refrain is, how long? Which is really a figurative emotional expression, right? I don't think David's primary concern is literally finding out how many days are left, right? He's just, he's letting it out, and the way it's coming out is, how long? Why is it going on? Why is it going on? The point being, what we draw from this is that we must honestly communicate with God in our suffering. If you are suffering and your prayer life is non-existent, then you're suffering the wrong way. Not praying in response to tragedy or injustice is a sign that you're probably angry or despairing or in denial or weren't that close to God to begin with. Pouring out your heart to God in suffering, on the other hand, isn't a sign that your relationship with God is weak, but that it's strong. It's not a sign that you lack faith, but that you have it. So what I mean is, David believes and knows that his God is one who shines his face upon people and remembers people and believes, David believes, God delivers his children from sorrow. That's the kind of God he serves. And that faith, that foundational faith, is the reason why David is so confused that God's face is hidden, he's forgotten him, and he's left him to his sorrow instead of delivering him from it. And he's expressing his his confusion, his confusion honestly. Now, this begs the question, I hope the question you're thinking, which is the, the issue of respect. Honesty and respect are not the same thing, so have you ever said something true that was a little bit disrespectful, say, this happens to me all the time, and probably KT too. You say something and someone <laughs> says, come on KT, yeah, it's totally you now, it's not me. KT. <laughs> and uh, it might respond, I- I'm just telling it how it is, or hey, it's true, right? I call it as I see it, right? As if there's some sort of virtue in being a uh, A straight shooter, right? Like you're the person who sees through it all and is willing to willing to verbalize it, right? Yeah. So the problem when, so when I say something and and Joe says, Joel, her problem is not that the statement is false, right? I mean, maybe sometimes it is, sure, sure. She's not saying correct that statement and then say it exactly the way you just said. That's not, that's not the point. The point is, whether it's true or not, you've not said it in a way that is appropriate or respectful. Okay, Most of the time, you're not talking to God when you say that, but it's no virtue. Disrespectful honesty is no virtue, even if it is entertaining. And it is entertaining. (laughs) David's heart in questioning God is fueled by deep relationship with God. He is not looking to abandon his faith or... Recant his loyalty to God. This is not the beginning of a deconversion Experience or a deconstruction of faith. Okay, those don't usually go like this, right? What happens that leads to quote-unquote deconversion is disengagement You stop reading your Bible and you stop praying and you stop hanging out with believers and before you know it You don't believe any of the same things you used to believe right? That's not what this is. This is the opposite This is engagement It's engagement. So David is not, I would even say, David is not even challenging God. It sounds like he is, but I think there's a flavor difference, right? The same words could be said in a sinful way as are said here in a non-sinful way. It's good to have hesitation about that or to be thinking through that and whether or not I explain that very well, okay? But a key difference between lamenting, lament-questioning, Biblical questioning and rebellious mm. questioning is motive. What are you trying to do? Are you challenging God, saying you can do better than God? That, that sounds a bit more like rebellion and disrespect. As opposed to expressing yourself to God, laying your heart out to God, which is good lament. So David is engaged. And the point is, when you're lamenting or see suffering, you should engage in honest communication with God. Next two verses, three and four. My point here is that we see that lamenting means or includes explaining God's heart back to him, which is a weird sounding phrase. I tried to come up with something more simple. It didn't work out. I'll explain what I mean, though. Verses three and four say this. Consider and answer me. Consider meaning take a look at this situation. Please reassess and give me an answer. O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, meaning renew my energy. I don't think this phrase means give me understanding about the situation. It could mean that. I I tend to think it means re-energize me, lest I sleep the sleep of death, which is either a reference to physical death or deep depression. I think probably deep depression. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice Because I am shaken. When they see that I've finally been broken, they will rejoice. So, what I'd like to focus on here is really seen in verse 4 a bit more than verse 3. So, David does here what Moses and others do throughout Scripture, and that is express to God why it would be in God's best interest to act a certain way. And this is even more clear in a lot of other laments. The one that comes to mind is. Moses before God, when the Israelites disobeyed, you remember this? I think this was the golden cap incident. If not, it was a complaint in the wilderness. And God tells Moses, I'm gonna kill them all and restart with you and your descendants. We'll start fresh. Now, God is expressing his anger to Moses in human terms, I think, right? Meaning, God knows that Moses' descendants aren't gonna be any less sinful than Abraham's descendants, right? He knows that. But he says this to Moses, I think, to draw out of Moses a deep understanding of who God is and how does Moses respond? He says, wait, 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 you can't do that because you're a covenant keeping God. And if you do this, if you break your covenant, everyone's going to see this and they're going to look at you and they're going to spit on your name and they're going to say, he said he would give Abraham's descendants these things, but he got angry enough and changed his mind, right? So Moses is saying, I know your heart and you wouldn't do that. Your heart wouldn't do that. So God in his relationship with Moses is, is drawing out Moses' priorities. He's testing him, I think. Which he does elsewhere. I mean, in Genesis 22, when Abraham has to offer Isaac, it says in the first verse God tested Abraham by telling him to do these things, right? So I don't think it's a stretch to say that. And Moses, so the, the, key, the key thing to notice is Moses doesn't say, No, God, you shouldn't do that because that's just mean. They need one more chance it'd be really painful for them, and that's just not right, right? No, he understands God's character is at stake, which is way more important than the preservation of Israel, right? Although, although that's tied to God's character. David, in the same way, is saying, listen, Lord, if you leave me to drown in my sorrow and tragedy here, your name is gonna be spit upon by the enemy, right? This does not align with what I understand about you as a person. David knows God, like Moses did, and proves that in the way he responds to God. Joshua, after the first attack on Ai. The problem isn't that he doesn't know God very well and is confused, the problem is that he knows God so well and that this doesn't make any sense. So, when I say lamenting means explaining God's heart back to him, I don't mean we presume to teach God or mock God, of course. What I mean mean is take the opportunity To explain to God what you know and love about Him and how what you're experiencing doesn't align with those qualities. And what it sounds like, I don't know what it would sound like. It'll sound like a lot of different things. There's a lot of different examples. I mean, the Moses example, the Joshua example, the David example. Don't let my enemies say that they've won. God, I know you, I feel like you should be motivated to act in a certain way because it seems like that would bring you glory the way you like to be glorified, okay? It's easy to say good things about God when everything's going well, which is not as good evidence of deep knowledge of God as it is when Moses or Joshua or David or you and I know God's heart to the extent that we can explain it back to him in our sorrow as opposed to, right, so Joshua didn't say, well, God knows best, 36 dead, but there's a plan, right? Even though that was true, Moses doesn't say, well, you work all things according to good, so go ahead, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Even if that's true, it doesn't make any sense. And God doesn't expect you to say, okay, right, blindly when his character and what he is allowing or doing contradict. What he expects is Psalm 13. What do you mean kill all the Israelites, right? What do you mean we lost this battle? That's crazy. Part of lamenting is respectfully explaining to God your knowledge of his heart. Last, last section, verses five and six. Lamenting means anticipating deliverance. Here's what the verses say, but after all that he said, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the tough one. So David anticipates God's deliverance of him. He is not experiencing God's deliverance. He's not making a prophecy. Uh, I don't even think he feels like God is going to deliver him, per se. The last element of lament is key, though, because it means... That you're choosing to not let the feelings rule the day. I mean, in some sense, in some sense, feelings by definition are out of our control a good portion of the time, at least initially, right? So this is not an argument for, you know, perfect control of emotions all the time because humans are emotional people. God's an emotional person. He doesn't expect you to feel good in your suffering. What he does want... And what David exemplifies here, and what is always exemplified in Lament Psalms, is that you say, I don't like it, I don't understand it, I don't feel like anything positive is gonna come out of this, even I don't feel like you're gonna deliver me. But I know, I know this story cannot possibly end in sorrow. That can't possibly be the end. David says steadfast love, which has gotta be the perfect phrase. For a lament, right? Steadfast love, stability, no matter what. God's love does not fall victim to sinful unstable emotions. It's rock solid. So David says, someday I will sing. I will sing again. Don't know when, can't imagine ever being in the mood to, but I know I will because he has dealt bountifully with me. Future perfect. A better translation would be of, of the last verse, I will sing to the Lord because he will have dealt bountifully with me. By the time I'm singing, I will be singing because he will have dealt bountifully with me. He has. That's not to say he's not thinking back on things, right? I mean, this is David. So how, how, David, how could David forget? He, David was the runt of the litter, right? The last kid. They didn't even call David to the party when Samuel shows up looking for someone, right? You're so insignificant, we're not even going to count you. But God called him. David's seemingly impossible origin story is, is no doubt also part of why he can say, God will again deal bountifully with me. He didn't bring me all this way to let me die or to let me be depressed. This is hope, in other words, the last piece of the puzzle, which is exclusively ours. You cannot lament if you're not a Christian. It's impossible because you don't have any hope, right? You can have evidence-based hope if you're not a Christian and you say you don't know you don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming specifically, right? But we know what's coming generally. That is victory over sin, which is why we say death, where is your sting? Game over, right? But we're still bottled up in these bodies and in these weak psychologies, right, that limit us in countless ways. And we, because we don't have to feel the hope for the hope to be true, can hope. If you wait for your feelings to catch up, they might never. They might never. You can't count on your feelings, right? Which is why, whether David feels it or not, he says, I will sing. You will deliver me. And it's that strong basis that allows him to do that. The main reason our worldview allows us to do that is because Christ does that. So probably the other, probably the most famous lament in the book of Psalms is Psalm 22, which starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is foreshadowing, of course, to what Christ says on the cross. Christ says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think he forgot? He didn't forget, right? It's not like, I mean, he just said, Forgive them for they know not what they do, right? Jesus isn't up there forgetting the whole plan. God, remind me why you're doing this. Why have you forsaken me again? Walk me through it. That's not it. It's lament. It's the senselessness of the one perfect person getting the wrath unleashed on him, right? And so, the way it comes out in Jesus, because he's not just God, he's a person, the way it comes out is why, right? That's what the pain brings forth. There are plenty of other cases, right? When when Jesus shows up at Lazarus' tomb and he's comforting his friends, right? He doesn't slap Romans 8.28 on it right away, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with you guys? Don't you have faith? I'm the resurrection and the life, for crying out loud, right? He cries. Because it's sad. Because even though Jesus knew that minutes from now, Lazarus would be out of the tomb and alive, hours, even though he knew, it still doesn't make any sense that we have to die. Sin is senseless. So, Jesus, because he's human, and felt the emotions, and expressed them in, we have to say, a sinless way, right? Jesus wasn't lacking faith when he decided to cry instead of, bucking up and taking it like a man, right? Because we have that in our worldview, we're able to say it's okay to feel and be emotional and express it, because Jesus did, and it's also okay to say feelings aren't the end of the story, and whether I feel it or not, I know that this isn't going to end in sorrow some way, okay? Christ's heart does not reject the downtrodden. He's drawn to you. He's drawn to you in your weakness. He's drawn to us in our weakness and in our suffering. It, our ugliness doesn't repel him. That's not the way he is. His heart is gentle, right? It's not the way he is to wait for you to get all put together. That would be bad news. That would be every other religion on the planet is what that would be. But that's not that's not who we have. In your prayer, lament. It's not wrong. Search your heart communicate honestly with God, preach back to God what you know to be true about him and anticipate deliverance as modeled in these verses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. How complex the Bible is, all that it includes for us. World thinks it's a world the world thinks it's a rule book for us. That it constrains our emotions, but the opposite is true. It models the most emotional experiences that we will have and we're thankful for that we're thankful that emotions don't scare you that you are emotional and that you created us in your image to be emotional we're thankful that you have shown us enough about yourself that we are confused when bad things happen when seemingly mindless violence or sin or immorality looks like it's winning in our own lives in our friends where we live We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us to the extent that we are not desensitized to that stuff. But they do confuse us, Lord. We don't understand why you let certain things happen, how it could possibly bring you glory for so many people to die in so many ways, so many people to do evil things. And so we ask that you would give us understanding, but more than that, give us comfort. Thank you for letting us express ourselves to you. Thank you for being kind, and we pray that you would bring glory to yourself uh, now and forever. In Christ's name I ask, amen. amen.